HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported, nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country, to offering scholarships to high school students is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 summer drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. Hey guys, <laughs> how you doing? It called in your questions to a seven one eight four nine seven two. What is it? Seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. God as usual in the studio. Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. You you missed me the past two weeks? No, no, no. <laughs> we got uh, Dave in the booth. How you doing? Good. I missed you. Ah, uh, see. You know why he missed me? Because I took the Zoom with me, the Zoom microphone. Oh, yeah. I with saw me, that email. And, and he needed it back. Mm-hmm. I'm like, they're working over here. I'm working. I'm in Pittsburgh. No, I knew you had one. That was just a call for all the other oh. ones that I forget where they went to. Where are people storing these things? That's a good question. Mm, I don't want to think about it. Uh, and we, have a, we, had, we got a question in on uh, pasta machines. And for that reason, my favorite uh, fiddler of pasta machines, uh, Alex Talbot from uh, Ideas in Food, uh, you know, famously uh, Alex Naki, Ideas in Food, is on the line. How you doing, Alex? Good, Dave. How are you? Doing well, doing well. So I have him in on the line. So I don't know whether he's going to stick around past this initial question, but, you know, if he does, you might want to call in your questions. You know, you know, you don't always get to ask Alex questions. Uh, live on the radio, but Alex, let me give you the question. Um, so, for those of you that don't know, uh, the ideas and food, uh, you two have been working with the. Uh, how do you pronounce it anyway? Arcobaleno or Arcobaleno? How do you pronounce that thing? Arcobaleno. Arcobaleno. Yeah, Arcobaleno. Yep. Yeah. Sure. So, I think you know, you guys were maybe the first people that I was aware of that were normal humans. You know, uh, well, not normal humans, obviously. You know, you like a well-known like food people but i mean in other words not like a a a restaurant or production facility that started using this um kind of smaller format pasta extruder and it's it's awesome right you love it it's phenomenal i mean they've got uh, a number of of levels of pasta extruders uh you know they they it is it is the machine i think that changed what is possible for restaurants and restaurant kitchens right you know so what's the throughput we started working with them What's the throughput on the thing? On again, you, you know, the more people that start working with it and, and, and tinkering and exploring what's possible with pasta, it, 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 it has more people saying, okay, what if we did this and what if we did that? And then the, the, the demand for creativity and I think the demand for uh, better grains and the demand for uh, really exploring 
the entire landscape of noodles uh, and pushing the boundaries of, of possibilities and the search for really the most amazing uh, pasta you can put together is, is, is growing and developing. Right, so let's just get some stuff out of the way so people know what we're talking about here. Your machine, like, costs roughly how much? So the tabletop, the AX18, uh, costs about $5,000. Oh! So, oh! Yeah, that's a lot. Go ahead. Look, you put it on the same scale as a Paco Jet, and a Paco Jet is for ice cream and a few other things, and I think they're phenomenal. But I think with a pasta machine, you are actually printing money. Well, you for a re- return, You will have your return on your investment in less than six months. Oh, no, no, no. For a restaurant, 100%. Uh, like, uh, I think the person who wrote in the question, I think, is just an avid person at home who really wants one. So, that, I mean, that, that's the market that's really, you know, not really being uh, addressed because there's, like, it's a lot so, for someone at home. So, that said, they've actually retooled and, and created a, uh, a pasta machine for that market. Still, still it's expensive, but it's, it, 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 you, can, you can do 500 grams, 500 grams of uh, dry matter. Okay. Uh, it's, the, it's the AEX-5, uh, and that, that, that comes in at the lovely price tag of, what, like $2,000. And what so is that, like still, seven, 750 grams of pasta or so? Uh, you're going to end up with uh, 650 grams of batch. So you'll have 500 grams of flour and the hydration at roughly 30%, 150 grams of that. So you can, you're kicking out 650 grams of pasta at a shot out of the AEX-5. Which, by the way, is enough for a house. That's a ten, totally enough for a house. In fact, I've got some friends that have small restaurants and are using pasta as, as, as just a uh, an accompaniment. They've actually gotten a five, so they can make you know twelve, fifteen orders a night right. of, of beautiful pasta. So it, it, it it's small, but it is a workhorse. It makes unbelievable noodles. Now let's let's just get some of the stuff out of the way. All of the inexpensive pasta machine extruders rather on the market like that attached to stand mixers or that were made in the 70s these are all garbage they, they don't work well look they'll make a noodle we, we understand that but part of it is is like i used to have a delonghi years ago like 2000 what three two that no it's 2004 2005 when we were out at kia grande i found one of the delonghis on ebay and bought one and made noodles. Uh, mind you, I was, I was working on both, both flour-based and also exotic noodles. And it worked, but it wasn't something that made, like, made, it, it didn't produce. So you're sitting there just dicking around waiting for things to, to happen. Right. So, I mean, it's hilarious, actually, looking at them, how slowly the pasta comes out. It's like, it's like a joke. It's like a bad joke. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's painful. I mean, it, it's, look, sure, you can do it. Like, I, I, I use the KitchenAid attachment. Because I thought that was going to be my solution. Nightmare. It's horrible. 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 So, so horrible. I, I mean, I, I guess it, it's, you know, you're not going to use a Yugo to race, you know, in a car race. That was my ah. mistake the last time I tried to race car stars was I got the Yugo for 400 bucks and I thought I could win the race with it. Mm-hmm. And you just can't. Yep. Can't win the race with a Yugo. Um, here's the thing, though, right? So uh, there's a couple of reasons that those uh, those things don't work, right? One they're just not powerful enough, right? And so you have to use a relative, even to get the slow rate out of it, you need to use a relatively high hydration dough so your noodles are never going to be as good, right? Right. I mean, so you've got your increase in hydration and you're not, you're not as dry, you're not as, 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 as compact and put together. You know, again, noodles want to be the least amount of, of moisture possible. Right. And, and so when you're extruding it and you, you can really cut down the hydration, your noodles don't stick together. People are always amazed. You know, because when you when you make a, a, an extruded dough, it looks like streusel in the in the hopper when you're mixing it. Right. And, and it gets compressed in there, and, and you know there's there's a, a ton of pressure right. uh, that create, you know turns it into a noodle proper. Uh, and the problem with the high hydration, along with the low force of the kind of crappy extruders, is that. Even if you could dry it out properly, the surface just isn't very good of those things. Correct. I, a lot of it, you're not seeing the same surface, but you're not seeing. I mean, it's really hard to extrude a wet dough. It doesn't want. It doesn't want. I mean, it's, it's like it's like trying to push, uh, you know, jello through a screen. Well, I guess jello through a screen actually works. Yeah. But, uh, 
I guess it would be more like, you know, the uh, silly putty through a, a screen. Ooh, that's ugly. I don't want to clean the screen after I push the silly putty through it. Um, now, so for those of you that don't know how these machines work, you should check out the uh, videos. But basically, it does the mixing for you, and then after you do the mixing, you start extruding. So it's like an all-in-one kind of a, a machine, right? It is. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Oh, hey, by the way, have you ever used uh, – I was considering buying one, but they're like 300 bucks, and I'm on a complete spending freeze until uh, we start shipping the uh, spinzals, as, you know, when, when that works. But the uh, – have you ever used one of those like uh, Bigley presses that you like actually like like screw down to a bench and then you use what looks like a wine press to extrude those things? You ever use one of those? Yeah, I mean, that, that, look, they they have the the, the beautiful uh, allure of yesteryear. Uh, I, I am sure you would figure a way to retrofit it with some sort of drivetrain so that you weren't sitting there being the, the guys sitting there twisting it. Right. I mean, it, it, it produces a noodle, but you are you are the you are the force. That's not what Nastasia says. But the uh, yeah, the, the, uh, I think I mean that's the kind of thing you kind of want to do a couple of times, but you don't want to do every. Uh, you're not gonna you're not gonna be like, hey, let me make a bigly tonight, right? No, I mean, I mean, so I mean, to, to go back to it, I mean, like I will whip out the the the, the pasta machine with you know a half an hour before dinner and make pasta. Right now, what does it deal with the machine with the extru- with the extrusion? It's not the same as with uh, as with a regular uh, you know sheeted pasta dough, right? In terms of rest times, that that stuff just doesn't apply in one of these machines, right? It's not again, and and really, I I think there's a lot of uh, misinformation even about with uh, you know sheeted pasta and and rest time. You know, a lot of what's happening is is we're we're paying attention to hydration, so. You know, with the extruder, you're, you're looking at it, and you want the, the moisture to be absorbed by the semolina or the durum or whatever grains you're working with. Uh, again, with, with sheet of pasta, I mean, that's why I, I say, that, you know, if, if you've got a vacuum sealer, you vacuum seal your dough, and you can roll it right away because you're expediting the hydration. It, it's, not, it's not like the gluten has to completely relax. It, it's not. It's, the, the flour has to properly hydrate, and that's why you go from that opaque to that nice, rich, dark color that you get by the vacuum seal of the dial. Right. I always, when I want to do things kind of quickly at home, I always cheat into a higher hydration and then just, and then just flour the hell out of it the first couple of times passes through the, uh, through the sheeter until it stops being tacky. And I know that that's probably not the best way to do it, but it is the fast way to do it at home. You know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, that, that you're, you're cheating the system, but that dough you better be cooking it right away as opposed to I'm going to roll it out and put it in the fridge because you roll it out and put it in the fridge and it's going to, it's going to keep hydrating and you're going to have a, a big dough mass. Yeah, no, no, no. That's a, it's, a, it's a right away cook and you've got to keep everything really separate because it wants to stick together, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. I mean, talk about pasta is like, like, like one of the like moisture, like moisture management, the miracle of moisture management problems that there is. But anyway, so this is all about the machine. And so the reason I'm prefacing all this to the question that this uh, that uh, poor poor guy from Montana wrote in is that the a miracle of these machines is uh, not just the extrusion, but that they also facilitate the proper mixing of the dough, and that to make the dough in a separate machine and then feed it into an extruder might be more difficult if you had, let's say, a KitchenAid as your primary mixer. Do you find? Do you think that's true, or, or do you think that's false? I think it's actually, you can actually do it. And uh, I know uh, a number of chefs, uh, Gerard Kraft out at Pasteria, he's got some larger arcobalenos. And he, you know, he makes, what, 200 pounds of pasta a day at his restaurant? So he, he uses a larger Hobart and, and, and dry mixes his dough and then just drops it into the hopper. So he, he's, always, he's staying one step ahead and, and can do it. So on a smaller scale, yeah, you can do it. You can, you can mix your, 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 your dough in a KitchenAid, and then kick it into something else and extrude it. Yeah. Um, and again, he's doing that, so he, he's, he has so much production that it makes sense for him just to go from one to the other. Right. Uh, and he's, he's just constantly feeding it. Oh, because he doesn't want to waste the time to have it mix instead of just being extruding 100% of the time. Exactly. So he's got his extruder literally extruding all the time, and he's just adding more uh, dough to it as, as, as it continues to run out. So he can go nonstop. Now you know uh, you know Johnny Hunter out of Madison, Wisconsin, right, Chef? 
What's that? You know Johnny Hunter out of Madison, Wisconsin, the chef in uh, from Underground Meats in uh, Madison. I lost that bit a little. I'm sorry. You're a bit staticky on my end. Oh, oh. So. Yeah, Johnny Johnny Hunter, the uh, the chef from Underground Meats, friend of the show out in Madison, Wisconsin. He uses – this is more preface to this question. See, I'm a big believer in pre- like multiple prefaces to every question. He uses his uh, large Hobart meat grinder as a masa grinder, which I've never tried, but I know a couple other people that have done it. They basically, what I'm prefacing here is that the the actual real Hobart meat grinder is strong enough to extrude masa dough, probably and grind probably strong enough to extrude pasta dough, right? So here are my questions because here I'll read I'll read you now, uh, poor guy from Montana's question. Um, since you guys are professional restaurant equipment uh, producers, designers, I want to ask you a question that has been driving me crazy. Why doesn't anyone make brass plates to stick into a meat grinder and extrude pasta with? A uh, number 12 hub meat grinder is cheap. I, wouldn't, I would use the – anyway. Um, a pasta extruder is expensive. Could I get a machinist to fabricate some brass plates from my cheap Chinese Hobart attachment and extrude pasta to my heart's delight? Poor guy from Montana. All right, now here's, here's, here's my thoughts, and then you just go off. Ready? One, meat grinder auger, slightly different from a pasta auger. The pasta augers I've looked at on the web have a constant pitch rather than uh, kind of an accelerated pitch like a meat grinder has. That's one. Two, you're going to want to remove the cutting blade off of the end of the meat auger, uh, meat grinder auger and replace it with just a spacer because you're not going to want that cutting force right behind your extruding die. But other than that, I think it might actually work. What do you think? I, I, I think it'll work pretty much without a problem. I mean, you're again, you're you're you're, you're fixing the problem sort of. Uh, so I guess you're you're allowing yourself to, to get to where you want to go. But if if at the end of the day you want to actually make pasta, you want to get the pasta machine. I mean, if you want to adapt it for a couple of days or you know, a year or so to see if it works, but. I think if you're going to start to make pasta, you're going to have a, such a demand for it that to be jerry-rigging your meat grinder to, to be extruding pasta dough is, is uh, not a long-term solution. Oh, yeah, yeah. In a, uh, in a restaurant, 100%. But, like, let's say, you're, let's say that your, your handle is literally poor guy from Montana <laughs> and, yeah. you know, you already own – the grinder because like you know like two three times a year you grind a whole elk through it because you know the elk you know the the elk is running through trampling on your garden anyway so you shoot that elk right in the heart you grind it through your hobart you have the hobart sitting there you know you don't have a couple of grand i would bet that you could find uh because here's the other thing like i don't know a lot about the plate sizes in in pasta extruders but there's there's several different plate sizes and on ebay you can get individual pasta plates for like uh, the dyes for like I don't know I forget like a hundred bucks right Alex something like that. Yeah. It seems to me that you could probably have someone make an attachment for the Hobart that would at least let you try it. And obviously, if you were going to do this professionally, you know, obviously, you know, you you want to go professionally. But I think I think you might be able to get some tests. But I do think you'd need to remove the blade. Do you think so, or do you think the blade wouldn't be a problem? No, I mean, I, look. I mean, if, if you look at the small meat grinder attachment, anyway, the small, the smallest die that they make, that's almost like a beagley, right? Right. So if you have one of those kicking around, I'd throw dough through it first and see and see what happens. I think it'll work. But uh, on the on the die on the dies for those things, don't they? Uh, they're um, what, what's it? They're uh, they're chamfered, aren't they? To kind of like gently extrude extrude to the to the face surface. Like they're not. It's not like a. It's not like a, a deep through all the way through, isn't it? Or no? The, the, they're not. I mean, the, the, no, you said the pasta, the pasta dies kick out. Yeah, they're, they're, they, they stick out so you can cut smoothly. Right. I mean, in other words, like, I think it's a little bit more difficult to extrude. Um, in other words, like if you were going to extrude something through a plate and it went from, it went from being you know, completely unextruded to the final hole size and then had to traverse the entire length of the die at that diameter, I think that's going to be a lot harder for the machine to handle than if it's cham- right. chamfered in the back and then like only has to pass through that thin place once through a small, you know, a th- a small uh, distance of going through that thin area. Don't you think so? Uh, so it, it, it depends on the shape. So like a spaghetti die... On the back of a spaghetti, yeah, it's it's it's, it's just all those holes. Huh. It just pushes dough through it. 
but for let's say shells or something like that, it's got that smaller bit, so it, it, it downsizes the dough, so it can actually come out as a shell. Huh. Now, do you think that? Uh, I mean, I know that like for various texture reasons, yada yada yada. Uh, you know, brass is the material of choice or bronze is the material of choice for these dyes. But do you think that the stainless uh, steel uh, plates would work just as a test to see how well it would work? Absolutely. I mean, look, you're already, you've already decided that you're going to run pasta dough through a meat grinder. I, I don't think we need to, you know, get meticulous about getting a bronze dye. All right. So as a first test, poor guy from Montana can, like, take the blade out of the back, just put a bushing on it to, to take up the slack and see whether or not he can push it through, a, you know, through the, uh, you know, the medium or the, or the I don't know how fine the plate, plate he has, but just test it to see whether it works? Exactly. I mean, there's an, I think there's an eighth of an inch, which, is, which will be like a thick bigly. So I'll give that a shot. I mean, on the, on the, on the, on like the, they also they also make one for for juicers, right? For like the uh, the, the 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 slow re- revolution juicers, they oh, make yeah. pasta plates for those. Again, home style, but so it's that's not too much of a difference than a meat grinder as well. Right, but I'm assuming poor guy from Montana wants to use the like an actual proper hydration dough. The other thing I'm concerned about is isn't your pasta auger longer for its diameter than a meat auger is? Uh, I think it depends on your, your darn machine. Uh, I mean, the auger's pretty big, but it, it, again, it's, it, that's because it's, it's, it's a pretty big hopper, so it's, it's taking dough from the whole space. Right, but in other words, part of the actual compression and hydration is happening in the augering procedure. So the, the, I, think it's, I, I think it's pulling it in, and it, but you, I think it's only in, in, the, in the neck of the, the machine where you're having, having it happen. I think it's, it's literally the dough is just dropping in earlier on. Right, right, right. But is the neck longer for the diameter of the auger than it would be? Because like a KitchenAid meat grinder, which I'm no fan of. I love the KitchenAid, by the way, but I'm zero fan of their meat grinder. The auger is extremely short on that and also plastic. So I don't know that you're going to be able to generate. I don't know that you have the time to get the dough in the proper consist, uh, consistency from that crumbly thing to being perfect dough uh, you know, in the traverse time of that of that particular meat grinder, because the auger is so short, even if you had enough power to you know overcome it, you know what I'm saying? I do. Um, I'm trying to think. So the, our meat grinder that we use, we use uh, one of the, the the Lem meat grinder, right? Which, is, which has got a it's got a big auger. I mean, a, a, you know, uh, but it, it spits meat out super fast. So I, I think it'd be interesting to see how it how it kicked out dough. Yeah, I, mean, I think it would grab it, but I I wonder if it's almost too fast. You want something moving a little bit slower. Huh, and you can't, they're not meant to be changed. Here's another thing, by the way. So poor guy from Montana is using a Hobart knockoff from China. And something I will tell you about motors is that uh, a lot of motors really, 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 really do not enjoy being loaded beyond their stated capacity, right? And so I guarantee you the, the good people at the Hobart Corporation have taken into account the fact that everyone... And, you know, and their sibling is going to completely and utterly abuse their product. Uh, in most commercial, like actual nam- name brand commercial restaurant equipment that I've ever used, you can beat the ever-loving crap out of it. And you might, you, you might you know, flip a thermal. You might melt a safety off. You might you know, boil water. You might burn your hand on the motor. But afterwards, it's going to come back to life. Um, like knockoff versions, like I often find like, you know, they use cheaper gears. So you might break the gear in, in a situation if you, cause a pasta dough is a lot of freaking force. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so you want slow extrusion with extremely high force. And, uh, so, you know, you might run into problems with the, with the Hobart, uh, with the Hobart knockoff there. Whereas as you're saying, you know, with, with like the real ones, it's either it's going to work or it's going to not. Not it's going to be too fast or it's not. But I wouldn't worry that I'm going to destroy the machine because I'm presuming it's built with a level of quality that can withstand that. Whereas, you know, it, you know, if if the thing if the, the thing might be like a complete champ on meat, but then uh, you know you try to shove something that's really hard into it and and you fry it. It's like my Nixtomatic, my masa grinder, you know, churns through masa like a champ because that's what it's designed to do. But you put um, you put like uh, peanuts with sugar. You know how you know how when you uh, process sugar and nuts together, it turns into like basically concrete. Alex, you ever done that one? Like 
it, it, like the paste turns to like concrete because I was doing it to try to get maximum oil extraction, and yep. uh, and it, it seized the machine and then like the giant puff of smoke out of the back. It came back to life, thank goodness. But you know you ha- you have to you know when, when you overload something, you have to be careful, especially if it hasn't been designed with thermal protection in mind. Just a you know little little hey, tip. You want to take another call, Dave? Uh, yeah, we can keep Alex on the on the. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. All right, caller, you're on the air. Hey, this is uh, Scooter in Montana. How are you guys doing? Oh, hey, are you are you poor guy? No, I'm not poor guy. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I love that we have at least two people in Montana that are listening. That's amazing. All right, uh, what's your question? Oh, you got more than that. Oh, oh nice. So I, I have a bag juice question. Um, I like to do my burgers low temp. I throw a little butter in the bag, maybe some garlic. Uh, when they're done, I have delightful bag juice, which is usually about half oil um, or fat and, and half liquid. Um, then what I tend to do is brush it on the buns and grill the buns. Um, and it's delicious, but there are two problems. One is sometimes using the brush, you end up with just oil and just water. So I solved that one. I added a little lecithin and blended and emulsified, but it's still really, really runny. And, and so it makes the buns really soggy. Uh, so what I was wondering is, is there a way to get that juice into something resembling a, a mayonnaise or a spread that I could spread on the buns before hitting them on the grill. Well, I mean, uh, Alex, I'm going to let you chime in for a second, but uh, in yeah. a second, but like a, a lot of the, um, a lot of this, especially if you're doing this in kind of a service restaurant situation, it when, when I was working with uh, juices out of bags or anything like this, sauces on, on braises, etc. Typically, what I would do is I would use yesterday's bag juice to work with today's product. And what, what that does for you is it gives you some extra time. So then if you, if you have that you know, uh, fat from yesterday, then sure, you can make a mayonnaise out of it. You know, like traditionally, like with egg white, you can do whatever you want. You, know, you can pre-boil the bag juice to get rid of the extra scummy proteins, strain it all through with the liquid, um, you know, take an egg yolk, mayonnaise it, or use any of the kind of more modern techniques to do it, and then use yesterday's product on today's burger. And like that's the easiest way because I find that most of the interventions that are going to let you do anything rather than just brush it on aren't a, I'm just going to do this while this thing is uh, you know finishing or getting ready to go out because it just takes a little more, it's just a little more frantic, frantic or hectic if you do it that way. Alex, what do you think? Well, uh since we're speaking with you about uh, and on, on the line about it, that actually sounds like a, a, a prime use for your spinzol, in the sense that I would take all the juices and run them through the, your centrifuge, have the fat, have the liquid, and have the scum. Take the fat and the liquid, and then be able to make my beautiful mayonnaise with the fat and the liquid, and then get rid of the scum in one shot, and then be, just have this great production. Right, and, sure, uh, but you, but you you would use yesterday's product. You'd use yesterday. Oh, yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to. You can, I mean, there's there's no way you're you're pulling it and going. And, You've got to get at least one day ahead. So the, the, the first day, somebody gets screwed. They don't get the, quite the, the, the same experience. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm, just, I'm just at home here, um, and uh, uh, so I understand that that's, you're saying that that's maybe not a possibility for same-day service, but what would be your technique? Let's say I do have some, some bag juices from yesterday, and you're talking about some more modernist uh, ways to or just traditional ways to whip up the mayonnaise. What would what would be your technique there? Mm. Well, if you were if you let's just go back to your actual problem for a sec. So if you're trying to do it with today's with today's product, right? Yeah. Uh, what I would do is I would uh, the the issue with mayonnaise in general, other than it is delicious, is that um, you want to stay within the within the proper ratio of. Um, of uh, fat to liquid, so you're going to want to stay about 80 percent fat or thereabouts. If you go if you go too much more uh, liquid than that, it's going to get too thin. If you go too much little, you know, a lot more fat than that, isn't that right, Alex? About 80 percent, right? And then uh, if you go too much above that, it could break. You're going to get that shimmery look at the top and break. So what you could do if you want to do this on the quick is you could pre-start a mayonnaise, right? So if you pre if you take an egg yolk and you know you pre-start a mayonnaise but don't don't like let it stay thin but not not broken don't fully mount it up to its full capacity uh then you can dope uh you can dope your fat from the bag back in along with the mixture alternatively 
because uh, you know, if you read Harold McGee, an egg yolk can really can really take a lot more oil than we're we're used to. Let's say your bag juice to fat ratio is around eighty percent in that range, then you can pre-make a mayonnaise fully mounted up right to mayonnaise uh, texture. Then just whisk your your whole garbage together and then into the mayonnaise, and it should hold it. I mean, uh, I would test it. You know, Alex, what would you add to stabilize? Would you add anything to stabilize, or do you think this would work? I think it would work. Did we lose Alex, Dave? Sounds like it. Oh, maybe he'll call back in. I think it'll work. Mayonnaise is a little bit... Uh, hopefully he'll call back in. Mayonnaise can be uh, a little bit tricky. I mean, when we used to teach the class with uh, Harold McGee at the FCI, we would we would make a gallon of mayonnaise out of one egg yolk. And it's always a little bit trying. Like, you know, it's like we always get like really close to a gallon and then it would finally break. But, um, you know, like uh, you can you can do pretty well. It's just about keeping your liquid to uh, to um, fat ratio proper. And also, uh, you know, you, obviously you have to add salt and whatnot or mayonnaise is, is god awful. And it's nice to have right. a little acid in it or, again, mayonnaise. I, you know, I don't like mayonnaise without some acid in it because it's just in, it's in kind of insipid garbage. Um, I've never made a mayonnaise with butter. Uh, I don't know why, maybe because I'm a low quality individual, by the way, Dax is working on the low quality individual shirt, Nastasia. Uh, so we can sell another three t-shirts, but the, um, but there's a famous recipe. His name just went out of my head, but he was the, uh, might still be for all I know, the head, uh, chef for uh, Valrona chocolate famous guy. I don't know why I can't remember his name. And one of his, like, kind of famous recipes is a mayonnaise made with uh, cocoa butter, with, like, chocolate and cocoa butter. And uh, he has to keep that mayonnaise kind of at the right temperature because uh, once um, the cocoa butter solidifies, the mayonnaise breaks. And so it's like keeping it warm, but it's a warm mayonnaise. And so, you know, butter takes longer to solidify than... um, than, than uh, cocoa butter does, but you're probably going to want to keep it in the range where um, the butter is going to be fluid because mayonnaise is built around a fluid oil, obviously, but not so hot that you curdle the egg yolk. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. Well, especially because some of the fat in there, too, is the, the rendered beef tallow. Right, right, right. Um, and so and that's st- that stuff gets waxy real quick. So in fact, by the way, this is one of the reasons that I really like to – so low-temperature uh, meats in general, um, steaks specifically, I often like to finish with liquid oil like olive oil. One, because I find it delicious, like a finishing oil, like a, you know Italian-style – you like that, right? Like a, like a steak with olive oil on top. But also because uh, just adding a little bit of liquid fat on top of the steak uh, helps prevent that waxiness that can happen if you let pure steak-on-steak steak action like sit around too long and congeal. And nobody likes – I mean I don't know. Maybe somebody likes that waxy. I guess on a roast beef sandwich, that waxy, waxy texture is what you're looking for. But oh, I not, hope not. Yeah, but, not, but you know what I'm saying? You know what I'm talking about, that waxy. You know what I'm talking about, that waxy. That waxy. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it's something that I like when I, you know, cook potatoes or something in, in tallow, but, uh, but yeah, I actually want a steak. Yeah, no, you don't want a steak. So anyway, well, I want you to try that. Hopefully sometime you'll try that, and then, like, uh, I'd like you to let us know whether or not it worked, and then uh, we can uh, futz around with it more. It's difficult. I mean, you can thicken the... Uh, water base of the uh, of of this stuff, right? And then yeah. if you emulsify it, the entire thing will be thicker. But it ain't going to be mayonnaise. You know what I mean? I mean right. ma- mayonnaise is like you know a minor miracle. Like I love mayonnaise. It, it came to my attention a couple of years ago that there's some people that don't like mayonnaise, and I just don't understand that. Like, like, you know, uh, I just don't get it because mayonnaise is like such, uh, you know, a miracle kind of a product. But anyway, let it uh, let us know um, how your mayonnaise test works. Oh, the main fat thickeners that people use to thicken fat. I don't happen to like them because the ones at least that I have used require a lot of uh, a lot to to, like thicken the stuff up properly. And uh, even even, even GMS. Oh, wait, uh, uh, wait, you're back, Alex. I am. I, I, I kept getting dumped out. I was going to say GMS. You can use a small amount to thicken the fat up for sure. Yeah? Is that available at modernistpantry.com? Ah, uh, sponsor. I, I'm thinking it's got to be. Yeah. Well, how, what's, what percentage do you use? Oh, shoot. It was, it, it, I think it was like 1%, if not less. Really? We were able to, it, 
Yeah, and you, and you can make spreadable mayonnaise, spreadable chorizo oil, anything. Yeah. Oh, so try that out because I, yeah, no, I never, I never really played around with that. Like you know, back when I, the last time I worried about this was literally ten years ago. And, uh, you know, and all, all we had then was like mono and diglycerides and that stuff is nasty to use as a thickener. I mean, it's awesome stuff, but it's nasty to use as a thickener because you're using like five, six percent of mono and diglycerides to thicken your stuff up. I mean, Alex, am I wrong about that? Have you had any good luck with that stuff? No. Right. No, I, 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 uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, the GMS it's is worked out really well. I got a, I, again, as you said, about, it was about five, seven years ago. We were we were really working with it as a, as a thickener. Um, Modern diglycerides, I haven't used in, in forever since, um, and so as, as, a, as a true thickener. But it'll it'll. It, it, I look at more as an emulsifier. Yeah, no, it's great for that. Better. But like I remember back in the day when everyone was trying to figure out what to do with this stuff when it first became you know available. You know, people were doping it directly into oil at huge rates to actually thicken the oil. But not only is it uh, nasty at those levels, but like the texture is wildly temperature dependent. And so, you know, you'd have, it would go waxy super quick as it cooled off. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so any of those things could try. So traditional mayonnaise or, you know, whatever, you know, you know what Alex was talking about. How, what percent, what percentage did you say, dad? Uh, I was looking Sorry. at that I'm, 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 tr- I'm trying to go back to my notes. And if you give me 30 seconds on the, uh, on this, New thing called the internet. I can look on our website. Ooh, nice. I, 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 I certainly have it from years years ago. But let's see. I see. Well, uh, well, Alex is searching. So hopefully uh, this is helpful, and you will uh, have great success either using a traditional technique or or a modern technique, and then let us know how let us know how it works out. Yeah, well, in the meantime, uh, you guys should come out to Montana. You got you got fans out here. Really, you know, I've never been to Montana, but I hear it's like intensely beautiful out there. there yeah, it's one, we get we get some nice stuff. Wait, what do you say, uh, Alex? One percent? One percent. Yep. Yeah. So like, and it, mel- it melts right into it. Yeah. So right, th- into, right into the fat. Right, cool. So theoretically, I love Montana, but I've never been. Stas, you ever been to Montana? <laughs> Montana is gorgeous. Yeah, I would love- stunning. Where were you guys used to be? You guys used to be in Colorado, right, Alex? We were we, we were we were in Colorado for four years, and then we actually spent the season out uh, in White Sulphur Springs, running a private ranch out there as well. So. Where's that? Hey, Where? no kidding. Is that in Montana? Yeah, uh, 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 in Montana, yep. Are there in fact White Sulphur Springs there? White Sulphur Springs? You know, I I don't know. I, I, we were stuck on the property, so yeah, uh, that that I'm not sure. We we went from the property to Bozeman every once in a while for ingredients. Nice. Yeah. So now I'll go sometime. Sometime I'll get to go. Uh, Excellent. Anyway, let us know. Let us know how it works. All right, Chell. Thank you, good both. All right, thanks, Dave. You want to uh, read that thing real quick, and then we can take another call. All right, Alex. Are you, uh, Alex, you staying? You staying with us? Yeah, I got, I got you. All right, cool. One sec. I'm going to read a little. Uh, I got to do a little bid nas. Do a little bid nas. Uh, today's program is brought to you by Modernist Pantry, providing magical ingredients for the modern cook. For free videos, recipes, tips, and tricks, visit blog.modernistpantry.com. All right. Oh, I meant the longer one. Oh man, <laughs> I'll read the long. I'll read the long Let's one on the, on the outro. Let's do it. Oh, okay. I'll read the long yeah, one now. Okay, got ten minutes. Okay, okay, business people. Uh, this is what is uh, known in the trade. Uh, although trade implies that we're being paid for this. That's true. Which is just not the case. But anyway, uh, this is called the mid-roll ad. Modernist Pantry is created by food lovers and cooking issues fans just like you. Janie, Chris, and the Modernist Pantry family share your passion for experimentation and have everything you need to make culinary magic happen in your own kitchen. Professional chef, home cook, food enthusiast, no matter what your skill or experience, Modernist Pantry has something for you. They make it easy to get the ingredients and tools you need and can't find anywhere else so that you can spend less time hunting and gathering and more time creating memorable dishes and culinary experiences. Visit ModernistPantry.com today to discover why Cooking Issues listeners call Modernist Pantry the cook's secret weapon. Be sure to check out their new kitchen alchemy blog at blog.modernistpantry.com for free recipes, tips, and tricks. And don't forget to follow Modernist Pantry on social media to keep up with what is new and exciting in the world of culinary ingredients and tools. My God, my mouth is so full of spit from not stopping in the middle of that. All right. Well done. Okay, we have a caller. Caller, you're on the air. What do you got for us? Hey, Dave. Um, my friend and I are working on a uh, mojito pavlova. Okay. We're going to do like a lime, lime curd and then uh, infuse the, uh, the meringue with the uh, mint. What's probably the best way of going about the, the meringue part? 
Hmm. Alex, you done a lot of work with meringues or no? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, the, the, the thing is, I make, I make, I make mint water. Huh? Well, how and, how and much? Use, and, and, and use powdered egg whites. Huh? You hearing that caller? Powdered egg whites. Okay. So yeah. here's the trick with powdered egg whites. Powdered egg whites come in various different uh, qualities. So, uh, like b- way back in the day, I'm talking like in the 90s. I, I haven't researched it recently. Like uh, a, a lot of Chinese, a lot of egg white, dried egg white came out of China, and it had like very particular properties as opposed to other ones. I forget. It was really liked for certain things and not uh, for others. But the recently, the powdered egg whites that I've seen are all relatively neutral, relatively clean. The issue with the powdered egg white is you want to allow proper time for hydration. Am I wrong about this, Alex? Or No, I, again, it, 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 still, it still wants to be properly hydrated. But with, with, when, we were, when we were flavoring things, for sure, it was, it was using, uh, again, powdered egg whites so we could use a flavored liquid, an intensely flavored liquid. So if you're trying to make, like, you know, the mint pavlova, I'd be using... Again, a, a concentrated mint tea or, or, or liquid, uh, and then and then the powdered egg whites and to, to make the uh, make it happen. And by the way, go with the mint tea. It's like buying commercial mint tea is the easiest way to get a relatively stable uh, liquid mint flavor, and then dope it with mint oil. Actually, attempting to get because mint oil is real and mint tea is real. Trying to take mint from uh, the garden and getting a stable kind of mint flavor, I find to be exceedingly difficult. Have you ever had any, like, perfect luck with that, Alex, or no? I think it's really hard. No, it, it, it ends up tasting so uh, grassy, and so, like, the, 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 it just it doesn't work. Right. So mint tea has been, like, good, proper, like, you know, like Moroccan-style mint tea has been dried. Once it's dried, my impression is, is that it's, relative, it's, it's relatively more stable. And then it's being steeped in hot water, which also makes it relatively more stable. Uh, but you will not have the freshness that comes from the oil. It'll be a different flavor, which is why I would dope back in a little bit, a little bit. Because uh, uh, the, I guess the oil theoretically will destabilize the egg whites, uh, but a little bit's not going to kill you. But I would dope it in for freshness. Well, what do you think, Alex? I, 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 I like I like the two step process there for sure. Yeah, because that that again again anytime we can we can layer those 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 flavors together, I think we're in a better place. Um, How about peppermint extract? Sorry. Wait, what'd you say? I couldn't hear you, caller. Peppermint extract? Do you think that would do the job, or just a straight oil? Uh, wait, I, w- I wouldn't use just straight oil. I would use, uh, because the oil is a certain portion of the mint flavor, and th- it, like, and a, a lot of that's the flavor that you would y- lose, um, from cooking the mint, from blanching it, which is what's gonna, basically what's gonna be happening when you're making the mint tea. You're gonna get more of a cooked mint flavor. I really think if you want an integrated, uh, mint, uh, experience, especially if you want that color from the mint, that you're going to want to um, you're going to want to do two steps. You're going to want to buy the mint tea, steep it, and then add the oil. If you want just mint flavor, sure, you could just use regular egg whites and uh, dope it with a little mint oil. You know, after it's after it's, I would say probably after you've whipped it, wouldn't you say, Alex? Probably after you've whipped it, I would stir stir it in it and pipe it. What'd you say? It's not going to want to whip otherwise with the, with, with the mint oil in there. Right, and it's going to kill it somewhat, but like once it's stabilized with sugar, you should be able to get a little bit of it in, which is all you're going to need uh, you know, right, you know, prior to piping. And yeah, you could fake it then with color, but I think you're going to be just have like a much more integrated experience if you, um, if you make the tea and then use the powdered egg white. And by the way, like you can have a portion of it be powdered. So like, you know, uh, you know, Johnny Azzini used to use a lot of powdered egg white in conjunction with actual egg white when only a portion of the liquid base needed to be highly flavored or need to be bolstered. So, you know, it's not an all or nothing proposition. Yeah. And the other thing you can do is actually, is actually dust the, uh, dust the meringue once you've got it piped out with dried mint. Oh, that's a good one. So almost, Almost like you do like a green tea, but have have your dried yeah. mint and, and powder that guy up and just dust it over like it. Uh, okay. And you know, and, and then I guess a, a final option would be if you uh, if you again nitro muddled your mint, 
right? And then fold that into your meringue. Well, nitro muddled mint, though, still, unless it's blanched, is going to go really... It's going to go black on you? It's going to go black. So you have to blanch it first. And as soon as that mint hits, as soon as whole mint hits heat, it loses the magic of fresh mint. It's, it's not that it's not delicious anymore. It just, it's not the same. It doesn't have that hyper-fresh... Um, you know, but honestly, like another thing you could do is you could do a nitro muddled mint or a dried mint into the meringue straight without worrying about it. And then after it's cooked, mist some of like mist a small amount of the oil on the top to get that. And that'll probably also give you a lot of the mint because it takes a minuscule amount of mint oil to, to, to bring that mintiness out. Um, so, you know, if you find that like adding even a little bit of mint oil to the, uh, meringue, you know, makes the meringue because as you know, as you've, you, I'm sure bo- you know, both of you have seen it, you add a, you know, a little bit of oil and you, you get a lot of bubble popping. It's not that it's, it's not as much yeah. of a disaster as, you know, the old cookbooks would lead you to believe, but it's definitely not your friend for like a, a meringue that's stable enough to sit there and pipe and then, and then bake out. Okay. Well, yeah, I don't have any access to nitro yet. I'm working on that, but hey, uh, how? What if I brought an ISI into it? Would that do anything, or would that be a, is that a waste of uh, cartridges? I mean, I don't really see how the ISI is going to help you in this situation, since it's not really an infusion problem. I think um, okay. you know. Or, or, it's also not really a whipping problem. I think egg whites are a lot better, you know, except for cocktail style, style egg whites. Like meringues are a lot better, like with a beater. You know what I mean? Actually, and uh, you know what's yeah. interesting is, I mean, you can play around with this, but if you took fresh mint leaves and let them sit in your egg whites for a day in the refrigerator and see if you can infuse them, infuse your egg whites with mint flavor that way. Yeah, I mean, okay. you could you could try as long as the the, the real issue is like you're going to want. The problem with the mint is is that um, right most of the the oil that flavor stuff is on the bottom of the leaves and these little kind of like uh, these yeah. little kind of like you know whatever I forget the name of them these little like, oil things on the bottom of the like leaves. Vesicles? Yeah, and then um, the the issue is is that mint is perhaps the most susceptible to leaf damage uh, in terms of flavor that swampy spinachy grassy flavor of any common herb it's the most susceptible so like you know and if there's any oxygen around it when it's doing its thing then it's going to go kind of swampy on you so you might want to like if you have a vacuum machine if you want to try an infusion in your egg white of fresh mint i would definitely try it under a vacuum to try to get the oxygen out because there's enough residual oxygen in a mint leaf to make it go swampy just on its own as soon as it starts getting damaged because it's going to get damaged from being under the liquid. I mean, you know what I'm saying? What do you think, Alex? Don't you think so? Vacuum is the way you, to go here? I think so, and I, I think you're probably going to get a, maybe some more flavor out of it as well. Right, but so I, I think... But vacuuming egg, vacuuming egg whites is a hilarious procedure if you have somebody else doing it. You have to be like really... You have to really look at your bag because once an egg white starts boiling, the bubbles don't pop readily. And so uh, your bag tends to fill up pretty quickly with uh, bubbles. So you're going to want to use a way oversized bag and you're going to want to have plenty of room in your vacuum chamber. uh, And you're going to want to keep your finger on the stop button so that you don't – otherwise it's going to – I mean, I'm, it's it's kind of a, a toss as to what's more of a pain in the butt, egg whites or or milk for this kind of a thing. But you know, they're both kind of pains in the butts in a vacuum machine. At least in my experience, I don't know, uh, Alex. Do you have any tricks on vacuuming those things, or just watch out because they're a pain? I'd, I'd, I'd watch out, and I'd have someone else do it. <laughs> that, way they, that way, that way, they can clean the machine. Right, and then yeah. what you, you always what you do is you look at them and you yell at them, and call them incompetent, even though you would have done the same thing, and then force them to clean it. That's always the way. Would you blanch them or anything before the fresh mint? Would you uh, no. spend it or blanch it? No. Well, here's why. If you were going to... we got to wrap it up then, Dave. If, if you were going to blanch it, then you might. Then you can do anything. Once you blanch the mint, then pff, you know all bets are off. You can do whatever you want. You could blend it. You could you know roll it into a cigarette and smoke it because... You know, you've already lost the stuff that you're trying to keep in there for have, you know, having it be hyper fresh. So, I mean, I mean, Alex, you might disagree with me, but I would say that if you're, you know, if you're going to blanch it, then I would just don't sweat it. Just blend it and add it to your egg white and beat away. You know what I mean? At the end, 
like fold it in. I really like the powdered dry idea, like really finely powder it in a spice blender and then and then uh, fold it in at the end as though it. I, I think that that actually is a nice way to go. And then maybe misting with a little fresh uh, mint oil afterwards. Um, what okay. do you think, Alex? That might be the easiest of all of it. Without or like your idea of making the mint tea and then with the egg white, that's the most integrated. But if you didn't want to go through the pain in the ass of doing that, your idea of powdering the dried and then maybe with a like a, an additional um, little bit might be might be good. What do you think, Alex? I, I think so. I, I think also if you spritz it just lightly with the oil and then dust it, that it's going to adhere to it really nicely as well. Oh yeah, on the outside. So, I was thinking he could do on the inside of the uh, pavlova as well, like in the in the meringue proper. But I guess just a dusting oh, just, also would be nice. You could, yeah. I mean, fold. I mean, I, I think that's both are solid. I think they're. they're I mean, they're, now you've, you, you, you've. I think delivered. A, uh, you know, a bunch of different ideas to, to to try and explore. It's it's like you know, how many of them do you want to integrate? Is the question now. Would you say that we've given him some ideas in food? I, I, I think some some ideas, some ideas in food. He's going to have to deal with his cooking issues, <laughs> but he has plenty of ideas in food. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, now we got to get out of here, Dave. Love you both. All right, thanks. All right, well, listen, well, uh, right. I didn't get to all the questions today, but thanks so much. Uh, I have a question on tonkatsu broth that uh, we'll get to next time in Pressure Cooker. Alex, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, we'll a be pleasure. back next week with more cooking issues. Listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 